0: I'm Jamie Lynn Crofts, and I'm here with Shawna Bray to talk about our interview with Joshua Cole, who's running for the Virginia House of Delegates in District 28. Joshua Cole is a pastor from Fredericksburg, Virginia, and he's running in the 28th District. Like District 50, which we discussed in our last episode where Lee Carter is running, this is also sort of the last ring of the D.C. suburbs, where people usually work in D.C. or in Tyson's Corner or other parts of Virginia that were initially suburbs and are becoming more and more urban.
1: So, you know, Joshua is currently a pastor. And one thing that I think that that helps him with is that it gives him some experience building coalitions and being able to speak to people about their legitimate concerns, but also pitch hard truths when he has to. For example, you know, a politician, if a politician wants to raise the minimum wage, they're going to have to find a way to deliver that message, not just to the people who will be the benefit, the, you know, benefiting from that, but also to small business owners and get their buy in. And that's going to take a certain amount of finesse. And, you know, that's something that that's the kind of negotiation that I would personally love to send a pastor to.
0: Shauna, I know that just from us talking in the past that something you're always interested in learning about is how people's faith influences their political beliefs. Do you think that Joshua being a pastor changes how he feels about things or how he campaigns?
1: You know, I I think that it's a really natural fit for a pastor because a big part of their job is just talking to people and expressing that they really care about the things that these people are concerned with. So to me, I think that, you know, pastors are kind of natural politicians and not in a sleazy way, not in a way that feels disingenuous to people. If you're a good pastor and you can convince a congregation that, you know, you're really interested in the issues that they're concerned about and and, and have found a way to talk to them about solutions already. Although, you know, kind of in a different context about how, you know, prayer and, and, and participation in the church can help you work through your problems. And, you know, government's obviously a very different solution. But I think that that experience you know, it makes a lot of sense. And, it, it, you know, we see a lot of like lawyers become politicians, which makes sense. But I think that a pastor is even an even more natural fit.
0: Oh, I agree. Uh, some of the work that I've done through the ACLU is racial bias training and some of the best facilitators who I work with doing that training are pastors.
1: You know, on the other hand though, if he's going to be asking for people of faith to to be his core constituency, come out and volunteer for him and vote for him, he might have some issues with his progress- progressive stances, particularly on, for example, abortion. Um, and I wonder if that's going to be something he has to address within his own church community.
0: Yeah, that's definitely interesting to think about, especially with issues that can be so controversial like abortion. Although I... J- I just want to say, as a strong pro-choice woman, that I absolutely love to hear religious people and pastors talking about women's health care. Yeah, you know,
1: and since he's already a pastor and has already, you know, made this this position public, presumably that's something that he and his congregation have already um, hashed out. And, you know, there's plenty of churches that support a woman's right to choose, so presumably that's already... Um, You know, something that he knows how to speak to when he's talking to religious communities. Um, You know, the other thing that I think that is really helpful for Joshua is that he's truly from the community. So when we're talking about ability to get elected and mount a successful campaign, he really is part of his community. I think that that's going to help him um, find his volunteer base. You know, that's, that's one of the things that I think about a lot when we're talking to these candidates is they're not just asking people to vote for them. They're not just asking people to send in, you know, their $20 donation. They're asking people to go out and canvas for them, to knock on doors, to ask other people to put a yard sign in their yards. You know, it's a big ask for volunteers and and for supporters in general.
0: Oh, it definitely is. And there's also something about your local races like this that really make you care a little bit more about who the person is because you really feel like they're representing you specifically. And it's not like, you know, for example, the presidency when they're representing millions and millions of people. In these types of races, it's a smaller group of people and it can get pretty personal when people think about who's going to be representing them in the state house.
1: Yeah, and not just that, you know the state house tends to address the more nitty gritty issues state and local government address things like, you know, zoning. And Mm -hmm. it's easy for somebody to say, you know, big picture that they support, for example, high density housing. But when it really comes down to, you know, sharing your school district with a high density apartment building, sometimes people find themselves backpedaling a little bit on that. So, you know, you, 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 it's It's kind of a funny situation. I think that, in general, people tend to discount these kinds of races, these house of delegates races these these state house races, especially Democrats have for years and years, and that's given the Republicans an opportunity to get a real stranglehold on 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 those races um, but ironically, you know in in a lot of ways, these are the people that have the biggest impact on your life when it comes to representing you at the state level. One thing I wanted to ask you about you know when it comes to these state state house races, and you know, we we discussed in a previous episode why we're focused on Virginia. But one thing that's on my mind all the time is, what about constitutional amendments and state legislations? I'm sorry, state uh, legislative bodies.
0: So it really depends a lot on you know the state and exactly what's going on. Uh, here in West Virginia, the problematic things are mostly that things are unconstitutional and not that they're trying to add new constitutional amendments.
1: Right. So you're you're dealing with legislators that are just blatantly passing legislation that's going to be overturned by a court in short order
0: oh yes we actually had someone when we pointed out that an abortion bill was unconstitutional tell us just days after taking an oath to uphold the constitution that they didn't care whether or not this abortion restriction was unconstitutional so that's the type of thing that you're you're seeing in state legislatures well as i recall
1: very recently at sally yates hearing um Only the Supreme Court can tell you if something's constitutional or not. I don't even know why we have everybody taking these oaths to uphold the Constitution. Because I guess. (laughs) Extreme sarcasm. Um, Okay. I
0: mean, mean, when I'm trying to decide whether or not something is constitutional, the first thing I do is look for a dissent from Samuel Alito. Perfect. Um,
1: So... But what I'm trying to ask you is, you know, states do have the power through their their legislative bodies to amend the federal constitution, right?
0: Yes. And one really troubling trend that I've seen over the last few years is that a number of states have, in their state legislatures, passed resolutions for a constitutional convention. And this is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Most of these resolutions were passed to hold a constitutional convention to create a balanced budget amendment. First of all, um, living in a state that has a balanced budget amendment and still cannot balance its budget, I don't know whether or not that's a smart thing to do. But but more importantly, uh, there's nothing in the Constitution or in our history that requires that the convention be limited to what it was called for. The last time Uh, we had a constitutional convention called, it was to amend the Articles of Confederation. And we all know what happened was that they actually entirely threw out the Articles of Confederation and gave us what's now the U.S. Constitution.
1: Right. So this isn't something that we've experienced in in a really long time. And, uh, it would leave leave open a lot of unknown doors. And, uh, you know, m- maybe there's reason to look at that constitutional convention. Maybe there's not. But, you know, I think that you and I both agree that if that's going to happen, it's not going to be when two-thirds of the legislatures are controlled by Republicans.
0: Right. I can't imagine anything good would come out of a constitutional convention right now if we picture who would be the people running it by uh, by 14th Amendment, so you know,
1: th- there you go. I think that I think that we both agree that you know th- this is an incredibly important race, um, and you know Joshua, he's running for a race that has been cons- historically very very red. That said, um, one of the reasons that it was so consistently tilted in favor of the Republican is who that Republican was. That was Bill Howe, and you know people not from Virginia, and in fact most people from Virginia may not know that, you know, he was a real institution in the state of Virginia. He was an incredibly respected person. And, and in fact, Joshua Cole, who's running for this seat, um, served as a, as a page to him, you know, a page being one of these jobs that young people have to kind of expose themselves to government. And Joshua, you know, worked for the man. And he's, he's said before that he has a great deal of respect for Bill Howe, but Bill Howe's retiring. So, you know, this the seat is becoming vacant. Do you think that that's, going to particularly help him?
0: I do think it's going to help him because especially in smaller elections, sometimes name recognition can be everything. And even though I have only lived in Virginia for a couple of months, I still knew who Bill Howe was, which I find really interesting. <laughs>
1: wow. I, di- I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. And it, it was just from reading the local news while I was there. Um, it's one of those things, uh, you know, in, in Illinois, you're you're going to know the name Madigan. And I think in Virginia, you're going to know the name Bill Howe.
1: So, you know, one of the things that I read about Bill Howe was that he really stood up against changing rules that would disadvantage the minority, even when the minority were Democrats. And I found that really, really interesting. Um, and, and it helped me understand why he's such a respected person in the state. You know, it sounds like he was the kind of person who really played by the rules. And, uh, you know, I think that Joshua also has kind things to say about him. But that said, you know, the seat's open now. And and now it's about running against the Republican coming in and not not this, you know, great institution of Virginia's state government.
0: Right. And Shauna, I know that you've lived in Northern Virginia longer than I have. Do you have some sort of insight on what types of issues the people in District 28 are going to be concerned about?
1: Well, you know, Fredericksburg is pretty pretty far away from me, so, you know, I'm not as familiar with it, but one thing that I think is pretty interesting about these districts in general is, you know, they really are part of the D.C.'s federal halo, and so there's a tension there between the people who are, you know, consider themselves to be part of part of D.C. or part of the bigger D.C. metro area and people who consider themselves to be more part of part of the rural part of the state, you know, this historical Fredericksburg, which, you know, it's a it's a historical town, and it has its own history and its own community of its own right. And, you know, there, I think there's probably a tension between being a bedroom community, and, you know, just just riding the DC wave. And, it, and I think that that's probably a tightrope, especially for liberals to walk to say, yes, I'm a liberal, but I'm not A liberal because I'm part of metro D.C. I'm part of this community.
0: I see a lot of that tension actually in West Virginia's eastern panhandle. Um, Interesting. People will call it occasionally, you know, part of the D.C. suburbs, and there are a number of people who live in Martinsburg, Shepherdstown, and Harpers Ferry who commute to D.C. on a daily basis, but they still very strongly see themselves as Appalachian and West Virginia and, and not Metro DC.
1: Yeah, so I think for Joshua and also for the other candidates that we're talking to in Virginia, um, you know, being part of the Virginia community is going to be important. Having that messaging, and you know, being truly sincerely Virginian is going to matter. Um, and I, I know, I hope that Joshua's messaging hits people that way, and, and that they that they really sense that he's interested in in not just being part of dc's economic boom but figuring out how fredericksburg can have independence and come into its own um despite its geographical location
0: and since as like you were talking about earlier he's a pastor he's a member of the community and he can actually trace his roots back in that area to slavery and i think that that sort of story is really compelling and i'm hoping that you know as many people as possible are hearing about him and his story and why he's running yeah you know
1: and, and we're sharing this interview with Joshua but I'll also point out that he has quite a few videos on his Facebook page and I watched those and you know I think that people should really take the time to watch those and hear his message and Um, hear his stance on issues, but also just to, you know, to to know more about who this person is. You know, I think that he really has the potential to be a rising star in Virginia. And and I'm really excited that that he's seeking out this office, you know, taking the time because, you know, we all know that the Democrats need a a deeper bench. And, you know, I, I look at Joshua and I think, you know, this is exactly the kind of person who I hope continues in public office and, you know, is really successful in this role you know obviously i hope he wins but after he wins you know i i think that you know he could really change things for the better
0: oh i agree i would love to see more of him uh you know hopefully in the virginia legislature and maybe eventually beyond
1: Welcome to Meet the Contenders, a podcast to introduce donors, activists, and volunteers to Democratic candidates running for offices all over the country and who will need our support to win. Today we'll be meeting Joshua Cole, a candidate for Virginia's 28th District.
0: Joshua, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I'd like to start by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your district and constituents.
2: All right, well, thank you so much for inviting me on today. Um, I'm excited to speak with you all and share um, so the 28th district is uh, situated in Stafford County and Fredericksburg, a small portion of downtown Fredericksburg. Um, and so it's a historical district, um, and I grew up here. I was born in D.C., but we, my family is from here. And I grew up here with, through this public school system, the Stafford County public school system. And um, it was a great place to live. And I think anyone always wanted to get away when they lived here. Um, and I always wanted to get away. But after I went away to college and I came back, I was like, no, this is home. I really believe I belong here. And um, my family has great history here. Um, our family can trace. Um, there, there's two historic African-American churches here. And our family traces our history to the slaves that actually started one of the churches called uh, Shiloh Baptist Church Old Site. So we have a, a strong history in this area. And um, this is, like I said, this is home for me. And I always felt like I belonged here. Um, and it's just so much history. And that's why I love Fredericksburg.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like a really wonderful place. What inspired you to get involved in politics?
2: So um, when I was in fifth grade, our um, we were part of a special reading group. And at the end of the year, they celebrated the top readers. And we took a trip to the Virginia State Capitol in Richmond. And while we were there, we were viewing the house chamber. And the guy who was giving a tour told us about this thing called the PAGE program where every year the Senate and the House chooses a certain amount of young people to come and work for the General Assembly. And so I said, oh, I wanna do it, I wanna do it. And years passed and I actually forgot about it. Um, But when I was in seventh grade, um, the speaker who was our delegate at the time, Bill Howe came and spoke to our school. And he told us about the PAGE program yet again and um, i applied and i was honored in 2005 to be appointed as a page um, by bill howe so in the 2005 general assembly i served as a page and i got to experience life in richmond with the delegates assisting the delegates serving them and um, i was even privileged that same year to be appointed as the governor's personal page so at that time our governor was mark warner Um, so i got to sit in on uh, cabinet meetings and serve the the secretaries that were there, and so that was really, really awesome. And um, I, I never thought that I would run for office. <laughs> I always wanted to uh, work for the delegates or work for the senators. You know, maybe be a legislative assistant or an intern. And um, in two thousand sixteen, um, I was hired to work down at the Senate uh, of Virginia as a staff uh, staff assistant. And so this time, when I went back down there, you know, I was a little bit more aware. I was older. I could see everything that was going on. Um, and I saw some of the things down there that I didn't like, you know, I would see senators who would stand in the foyer and tell lobbyists or constituents, Oh, I'll vote for this. I'll take care of this. And they'd come into the Senate floor and vote opposite what they said they would do. And I really thought that we were electing, you know, legislators to go to Richmond who would fight for us. And it seemed like they were fighting for their own interests. So after the 2016 session ended, I was keeping my ear to the wind. I wanted to hear who was gonna come out and run as a Democrat um, against Bill Howe because I knew that the House had elections coming up. And I kept waiting and I kept waiting and it seemed like no one was getting into the race. And I was like, with everything that's going on, someone needs to be running. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I started attending you know, the local Democrat meetings. Um, I reached out to different people and they all said they weren't aware of anyone running. Um, so I did some research and I knew there was a lady who ran against Bill Howell in 2015, Candy Hilliard. I reached out to her. I talked with her um, and I asked her, I said, you know, are you aware of anybody running? Are you going to run again? And um, she told me she wasn't going to run again. She had no interest in running again and she wasn't aware of anyone running. Um, but she asked me, you know, maybe you should run. I said, me? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and um, that was, I want to say, maybe back in August. And from August through November, I really tussled and tossed with the idea, um, and still at that time, no one came out to run against Bill Howe. And so, in January of this year, you know, I officially announced my candidacy to run for the Virginia House of Delegates. And two months later, Bill Howe announced his retirement. So, um, you know, it's exciting times, and you know, we're really trying to push for a progressive voice and actions in Richmond.
1: So. It's my understanding that the Republican field for to replace Bill Howe will likely be crowded. Mm -hmm. But I think we can reasonably expect that whichever candidate you do face, that they'll be running on improving economic conditions in your district. What is Mm -hmm. your plan to represent the economic interests of your constituency?
2: So um, I was talking with one of the ladies who works with our campaign last night. And um, I told her, you know, staff are counting the city of Fredericksburg, great places to live. Um, Stafford County is even ranked as the sixth wealthiest county in the entire United States. So we're like, oh, well, what can we do to prove? It's great. Well, actually, when you pay attention to that, it's really great in one of the wealthiest counties because a lot of the people who live here work in Washington, D.C. So if it wasn't for commuters and if it wasn't for Washington, D.C., I don't think Stafford County would be on that list. Um, so we definitely want to endeavor to bring jobs here to Stafford County, to Fredericksburg well-paying jobs so people don't have to spend two three four hours a day commuting up to washington dc just to get um pay that they're able to live off of Um, and because stafford county is a part of the washington dc metropolitan area you know it's expensive to live here Um, so we want to make sure that people are able to find jobs locally afford to live here and don't have to go you know 45 minutes up the road to work while sitting two to three hours in traffic Um, and so we really want to look at raising the state minimum wage Um, We also want to make sure um, that people, like I said, that people are able to live here.
1: Right, one of the issues that we've talked to other candidates about is increasing the minimum wage. And of course, the prevailing wage in D.C. is higher. Do you think Mm -hmm. that small businesses in your district would be able to support and be able to afford to pay an increased minimum wage?
2: And that's key, so I immediately thought about that um, because I have quite a few friends and family members who are small business owners. And um, so one of the reasons that we came up with, if we're raising the state minimum wage for those small businesses, we want to look out for them. We want to make sure that we're able to give them some kind of incentives to make sure that when we raise the state minimum wage, if they were to go under, that we prevent that.
0: So in the last couple of episodes, we've heard a little bit about how the Virginia legislature blocked Medicaid expansion and what Mm -hmm. that's meant for the state. Can you tell us how that's impacted people in your district and what solutions you'd like to implement to improve access to health care in Virginia?
2: So um, when we did some research, we found out that, um, that there was actually one of the senators who asked, you know, everyone's talking about um, pushing for Medicaid expansion, but where's the money coming from? Well, <laughs> the funny information is the money has already been set aside. So we do know there's $10 billion just sitting in DC waiting for us to accept it. Um, you know, if we expand Medicaid in Virginia, that's over 30,000 jobs that we can bring here and 400,000 citizens who will receive uh, health insurance. So I think it's key. And I just really don't like that there are people in Richmond who are playing with people's lives like that. Um, and so for me, it's not a question of if we should. The question is we need, well, the, the solution is we need to do it and we need to do it now. Um, And we do know there's roughly in the 28th district, there's roughly about 300 people who will gain access to health insurance um, once we expand the Medicaid. Um, And there's a lady who I spoke to a couple of months ago. She said she went to Bill Howe's office two years ago and she talked to him about, um, you know, how if Medicaid was expanded, she would have access to health care. And he said, well, let's see what we can do. And I think she said about two weeks later, she heard him on an interview on the radio and he said, I personally have not heard any stories and I don't think it affects the people in my district. So we're not going to expand it. Oh my God. And that really hurt me um, because there's people lives who are stuck in this crux and we need people who are going to help them, who are going to fight for them and push um, to make sure that their lives are improved.
0: Yeah, I live in West Virginia and the Medicaid expansion and ACA have helped Tens of thousands of people here. It's it's been mm-hmm. really incredible to watch.
1: In fact, Jenny, um, I would say that it's helped everyone in Virginia, West Virginia, because it also lets businesses hire people who are healthy and cared for. You know, when we talk about expanding healthcare, it's not just about the patients; it's about the mm-hmm. economy and the entire state and employers too.
2: Absolutely.
0: Um, have you thought about what the state's role could be if? this Republican Congress at the national level ends up you know putting the AHCA into law. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you thought about what the role of the state legislature would be if that happened?
2: Absolutely. Um, And so what one of the things that I've been um, doing some research in and taking a look into is probably a state supported single-payer system. Um, And you know despite whatever the federal government does, You know, we can still create a single payer system here in the state. Um, and I have an awesome guy that I've been communicating with who has really been pushing me to look into that, do that, it's really, really good. And I think you know, that would be a um, an economic better for our, our economy that we create a, a state single payer system here in Virginia and that we can push it uh, for the state legislature.
1: So you're running for a seat in a district that became slightly more Republican after the last round of redistricting What's your philosophy for sensible district lines?
2: So one of the things that I fully uh, believe in and I would back um, if elected is a redistricting reform that would be taken care of by a third party system. I really don't think that the legislators should do that. Um, And, you know, everyone's screaming and hollering, well, the Republicans have gerrymandered, but the truth of the matter is history repeats itself because the Democrats, we've done it too uh, when we were in control. So I don't think that the legislators should have control of redistricting. I think it should be a third-party organization, um, and that's one of the things that I would push for once we get to Richmond, um, to make sure that it's equal, um, that there, uh, it's fair, and that there is compaction.
0: To switch gears a little bit here, you're on record supporting expanded use of body and dashboard cameras for police, which can help provide a more complete picture of what happened after a confrontation between police and civilians. Mm-hmm. What kinds of guidelines should the State Legislature insist on for their use?
2: So I think it's key um, when we're taking a look at that because I've, I've even had people who told me um, even if they are using dash cams, even if they are using body cams, um, that you, you know, there are still things that can be done that it could be ousted in, in court or whatever like that. So we want to make sure and the reason why we introduce that is, is for the protection of the civilians um, mm-hmm. and also the protection of the police officers. Um, when we take a look at those body cams, um, there there are already a few counties that have already um, introduced that, and they're actually putting that into practice. And um, one thing I can say that I'm proud of Fredericksburg City, um, that every police officer that I've encountered, whether it's just knocking on doors or walking around town, they have body cams on. And so that's something that's commendable, and it's awesome, because they're showing that this is a serious matter, and that they're not just taking um, what's going on nationally into context, they're taking their citizens in, um, into consideration and they're taking their police officers into consideration. Um, and I think that what we need to do, of course, it's gonna cost. So we have to make sure that we have people who are in Richmond who are fighting for the budget to make sure that this is negotiated. So this is in the budget for our local, uh, local police departments and um, that the police officers are comfortable and that the constituents are comfortable as well. Um, it, 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 it's just sad at the different stories that we're hearing um, from the past few years um, and even with the dash cams, even with the body cams, we see what's right there. And the sad reality is whatever the evidence is is pushed away. And, you know, they still let police officers off or they still let civilians off. And we just want to make sure that the people are protected and the police officers are protected. So that's really what this push is about, that everyone is protected and that everyone's given a fair trial when it's it's brought to court.
0: Absolutely. I. Uh... I've dealt with body cameras a lot in my law practice, and I like to say that they're a potential win for everyone as long as the right procedures and policies are in place. Agreed. Uh, So I noticed that some candidates have been pushing for no union involvement in police disciplinary proceedings. What role do you believe police unions should have in disciplinary proceedings?
2: So um, one one of the things that I agree, my mother's a union worker. So I'm always in support of, of unions, um, and I think that it's key that, you know, we have to protect those who are in unions, and that includes police officers as well. Um, we want to make sure that they have the ability to, um, 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 to leverage, and um, I think that is key. Uh, I'm in full support of unions and union workers. I mean, like I said, that includes police officers as well.
1: So Donald Trump has called into question whether the IRS or otherwise federal government should attempt to prevent pastors from endorsing or attacking political candidates. What role do you think church leaders should have in discussing politics with their congregations?
2: Um, One of the things that I I really believe in, and it's surprising coming from me as a pastor, I believe in separation of church and state. Um, Now, as far as I'm concerned, what that literally means is that the state cannot impugn on people you know, how they should believe or what they should do. Um, I'm not sure if I believe that pastors should uh, endorse political candidates um, because that that's really what the Johnson Amendment came into, because pastors were throwing weight around and the communities were submitting or supporting specific candidates solely because pastors supported them. And um, we can see that from Liberty University, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr. getting behind Donald Trump and Liberty University becoming full supporters of Donald Trump. And that to me is scary. Um, and I think that I, I don't have a problem with pastors sharing with legislators. I don't have a problem with pastors sharing their personal views. But I do have a problem when pastors or churches or denominations back candidates, because that really plays on the psyche of the people. Well. This church supports this candidate, and since I'm Baptist, I have to support them. Well, since I'm Catholic, I have to support them because this is what the bishop said or this is what the pastor says. And I think that's dangerous. It doesn't give people the free will to think and the freeness to to do what they think is in their best interest, not what their church says.
1: So I think there's kind of two parts to this question. There's your theological perspective, but there's also your political perspective. What action should the state of Virginia take, given that you believe that the church probably shouldn't be endorsing a specific candidate.
2: So I think that's very um, hard to, to legislate like that, something like that, because you know churches are separate. But one of the things that, that also brings into play is discrimination. Um, and we can pass legislation that prohibits and protects others from being discriminated against. And that's very key. You, know, you have these churches out there who are supporting particular candidates and discrimination can come right into play with whoever those particular candidates are. And so we want to protect whoever may come into the crosshairs of being discriminated against. Um, and that's key. Um, just last year, uh, Senator Carrico introduced a bill um, down in Richmond as it relates to um, uh, uh, LGBT rights. And basically, the bill was talking about uh, churches would be protected. Well, I, I don't know if Senator Carrico did his research or not, but the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom already protects uh, pastors uh, from coming in. Um, uh, you, you know, it's not discrimination, you know, that's their religious right. But what the problem is, you know, is, is businesses. And so we want to protect those people from, you know, being discriminatory. If you are discriminate, if you are being discriminatory with your businesses or in your personal life, you know, we can prosecute you to the fullest end of the law because you're being discriminatory and that's wrong. Uh, so as it relates to churches it's getting back on track. <laughs> <laughs> As it relates to churches, you know, we can't particularly say what churches can and can't do, but we can fight against discrimination on a personal level. and, And that's what we vow to do as a legislator once elected.
0: Republican candidates have framed the controversy surrounding fracking and coal mining as one about job creation. How do you think we can reframe that debate? And what role do you believe the Virginia legislature should play in addressing it?
2: So um, I, I think it's very key. Um, many people, and this is from their own personal uh, confession, there were many people who voted for Donald Trump because they said that he was going to bring back the coal industry. And they said deep down inside they knew themselves that the coal industry was not going to return. Um, the sad reality is you know, with that going in a decline, we have to look at other measures and other options um, that we can bring energy here to the state of Virginia. Um, Just recently, I was reading an article that talked about how the Rappahannock River is ranked number five in the United States, not fifth in the state, but number five in the United States as a potential endangerment for fracking. And that's scary because that river runs straight through Stafford County and Fredericksburg. Um, One of our neighboring localities, King George and Westmoreland County, they have put in uh, ramifications for fracking. And I think that's key that we need to take a look into that as a state. If Maryland could ban fracking and we sit on the same aquifer, why can't Virginia ban fracking? It's it's very key. It's harmful. And, you know, one of the things that they've done in Richmond is they're not even telling us what chemicals they're putting into the water when they're fracking. If you can't tell me what you're putting in my water, then you don't need to do it at all. And that's point blank, period. Uh, So as a state, I think we can push towards banning fracking and then as a substitute or to uh, combat that, We need to look into solar energy, wind energy. And, uh, you know, we have wonderful land here in Fredericksburg and in Stafford County. You know, we can bring uh, wind farms here. And the great thing about it is it's pretty. It's good to look at. It's nice to look at. (laughs) So it's not like it's even going to destroy our landscape. It's going to enhance it. And um, that that also doubles as a job creation. Uh, we can bring wind and solar energy here and doubling as job creations for this area. It, we can bring job creations locally and give people well-paying jobs here.
1: Do you think that those energy solutions come with the same number of jobs and quality of jobs that the fracking industry purports that fracking brings?
2: Um, and, and that's key. We um, Governor McCullough did a research a couple of months ago, and um, they, they talked about how many jobs are there. And um, I think it's awesome because, yes, you know, we can combat fracking. We can combat the coal energy um, by bringing those strong support here. And even with as it comes to solar panels, you know, we can help people by if, you know, giving them incentives for um, uh, outfitting their homes or solar panels, you know, that gives them incentives, tax cuts or whatever you ha- whatever have you. Um, and so, yes, I agree. It does bring a competitive job market with that. And I think that's something that we need to look at. And the sad reality is many of the legislators who are pushing for fracking and pushing the coal energy is because, you know, they benefit from that. And so we need to look at different avenues and different venues. And this is a stronger way where it supports our citizens, it supports our constituents, and it supports our environment.
1: So would you be in support of, for example, tax credits for adopting solar panels, or what do you think the legislator, legislature's role looks like in addressing these kinds of clean energy concerns?
2: I believe we should, um, and that's something that we can take a look into. Um, and definitely when we get into Richmond, uh, we'll have all the constituents who are sharing with us, and we can share with them, you know, if you outfit your house with solar panels, this is how it benefits, and this is how it's going to work for you. This is how much money you're going to save, and we can introduce something to them as far as a tax credit or whatever have you. Um, but I think it's something that we definitely should be looking into.
1: Are you seeing people in your district right now already adopting solar panels?
2: There are a few, <laughs> not as much. Um, and I, I think that's just because the knowledge isn't there. Um, and if we share it, you know, if we advertise it, if we put it out there, I'm pretty sure people would, would run for it. And especially in the areas, uh, you know, in Stafford County, it, we have a lot of rural areas. And so there are a lot of places out there that are sitting out there that don't, that aren't covered by trees. And they can definitely benefit from that.
0: So what do you think right now is the biggest issue facing the women in your district? And what do you think the role of the state legislature is in protecting women's rights? Uh,
2: so it's, it's, there's a couple of different things that they're sharing with me, um, and I love it. Um, equal pay um, and paid time family leave. Um, that's imperative uh, that we introduce that in the state of Virginia. Um, I was looking at a, a couple of different countries and uh, the United States is one of the very few countries that do not offer paid time family leave. Um, and so I think that's important that we introduce that um, equal pay for women. That's important as well. Um, and we also believe that women should be protected um, when it comes to their choice, um, whether they you know, want to have abortions. That's their choice. And I always say all the time, as a man, I'm not qualified to tell a woman what she can and can't do with her body. Um, And I I don't think many people understand that all the ramifications and all the protections that Virginia has. Um, And I was recently talking with a pastor um, a couple of weeks ago and he said, you know, I I can get behind you. But my issue is you being pro-choice. I said, well, let me ask you this, Pastor. I said, let's say your daughter that you love so much. She doesn't want you to know that she's pregnant and she goes to get an abortion. Would you rather her go a safe route? have all the, um, the need, all the ability that she needs, the right doctor to do it and get it done properly or go behind your back and do it in an unsafe manner. He said, well, of course, I want to do it the proper way. Even if I don't know, she needs to do it the proper way. I said, and see, that's what we need to do in the state of Virginia. We want to make sure that women have full rights and the ability to do what they want to do or believe that they should do without being ostracized, without having all these ramifications and that they should be safe in doing it. That's really what my big push is about, that women are safe.
1: When it comes to paid maternal leave, there are kind of two models. The American model where we you know, wait for employers to decide how much leave they're going to offer or how much they're required to offer by a local government, and something more like the Canadian model where um, unemployment insurance pays for the leave. What model would you like to advance in Virginia?
2: I think that um, the legislators should set that in advance. Um, and one of the things is, is key, and, and that's why I'm really pushing on transparent and accessible leadership for Richmond, because we need to hear from the constituents and the constituents are already voicing their opinion to their delegates, to their senators. And the sad reality is many of them aren't listening. Um, so if we are able to set that up as a legislature um, and put that into practice while listening to our constituents, I think the constituents can benefit and it would be um, they, we would introduce benefits that really would help them out and um, that they can live off of.
1: So does that mean that the state, through something similar to unemployment insurance or some other fund, would provide paid leave or that employers would?
2: So I think the, um, I think the employer should do it, but with uh, guidelines from the state.
0: Another thing we've heard a lot about at the national level is whether or not we should quote-unquote defund Planned Parenthood um, which basically means that the government would no longer reimburse Planned Parenthood for medical services. Uh, mm-hmm. Where do you stand on that?
2: Um, I think when people hear Planned Parenthood, all they think about is abortions. Um, and Planned Parenthood offers uh, multiple services, you know, more than just abortion services. So I disagree. Um, they sh- we should not be defunding it. Uh, and I think that we should continue to fund it. And that's really what the Democratic Party here in Virginia has been pushing for and fighting against.
0: Are there any other issues that you think the women in your district are particularly concerned with? I know that since the election, we've seen a lot more women at town halls and being vocal politically. Um, And so I I think that women are getting a louder voice than we're used to having. Um, Are there any particular Mm -hmm. concerns that you've heard from your constituents?
2: Uh, And I think really for me, And like I said earlier, is the accessibility. We're dealing with a congressman now that when we call him, he doesn't answer or he turns his phones off. Um, And so, you know, the ladies in the district, you know, they're frustrated that they can't reach their representative. They can't reach their delegates. Or when they invite their delegates or senators to events for them to express their concerns, they don't show up. Um, And so, you know, we're electing these politicians (laughs) and they're looking out for their own interests. And um, I remember one of the ladies, I had a a town hall a couple of weeks ago and she came up to me. She said, now, don't tell me you're going to be like congressman who shall not be named (laughs) when you get in office. You're not going to answer your phone and you're not going to come visit us. I expect to still see you and I expect to call you and you pick up your phone. And I said, yes, ma'am, you can count on me. That's what I'm here for, to share your your views and to share your concerns, uh, because that's what you put us in office to do.
1: So you've talked to us a little bit about Bill Howe, and I'm aware that he was a fairly popular legislator. And in the last election, he got, you know, he had a lead by about 21 percent. What resources and strategies will you use to win this race?
2: So um, Bill Howe, and because he appointed me as a page, you know, one of the things I and and many people don't understand is I really looked up to him. He was a genteel leader. He was a great guy personally. Um, The reason why I ran against him was I just disagreed with some of his policies. Um, I I don't want to erase everything Bill Howe did. We want to use what he did as a platform to push forward and continue on as a progressive voice. Um, We've already reached out to um, the local churches. We've already reached out to different people because we understand in order to win this, we're not going to win it just with the Democrats. We have to reach out to the independents. We have to reach out to the Greens. We have to reach out uh, to moderate Republicans uh, because there are going to be some moderate Republicans who are just not happy with what things are going. I knocked on doors last Saturday and I talked to a guy and he said, well, what party are you with? And I told him I'm a Democrat and he looked back with me with a raised eyebrow. He said, I'll let you know I've been re- voting Republican all my life. But after what's going on right now, I'll never vote Republican a day in my life. And he shook my hand and he said, you have my vote. And it, it's going to take that. Um, it's going to take um, when we're on this campaign trail, reaching to people, touching the people and listening to what they have to say. Um, I, I can't tell you how many of those who voted for Donald Trump who've already told me that they're supporting me. Um, there are people in the community who are just hired of politics as usual they're tired of being caught in the game of politics and they're ready for a change they're ready for something fresh and they're ready to benefit from whoever they put in office and that's what i'm endeavoring to do Um, you know when when they elect us they have the ability to correct us they have the ability to call us out and say you voted for this and i disagree and this is why with proof they can show us what what we're voting on is not working or if it is working why we can increase it, why we can make it better. And that's really what it's about accessibility and transparency and leadership. People in the 28th district need to know that if I'm elected as their delegate, I'm going to be there for them and that I'm really, really fighting for them. And we also want people in the 28th district to understand I'm just not fighting for Fredericksburg and Stafford, but I'm fighting for the entire Commonwealth to make lives better for everybody in the entire state of Virginia.
1: Thank you. Um, it was a really wonderful talk. We really enjoyed talking with you today. If our listeners want to learn more about you, to volunteer, to contribute financially or otherwise, learn more about your campaign, where should they go?
2: Um, for social media outlets, they can follow us on all social media outlets at jcole, that's J-C-O-L-E, the number four, V-A. And then they can visit our website, and that's www.jg, like Joshua Gregory, jgcole.org. They can learn more about our platform. They can sign up to volunteer, and they can also donate right online. Um, And so we just ask that they follow us on all social medias, uh, help us share our posts, retweet our posts, and then log on our website. They can help by donating or just signing up. You don't have to live in the 28th District. Uh, You can do some call time from us right in your living room or uh, you can help share our post. That's how you volunteer. And we really need all the help we can get to really flip this district blue come November.
1: I think that's absolutely correct. And uh, I hope that you get all the support that you need to flip this district.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.